Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. This evening, I'm sat with Chris Hunt, co-founder of V7. Now, for everyone who's not familiar, V7 is a commercial property development company specialising in value-add projects across the UK, but working solely in the workspace sector. Now, they work with a small number of investors and operating partner, delivering full investment, asset and development management services. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nick. Well, do you want to get us started? Tell us how Chapter 1 begins. Yeah, I I think the best place to start is to go way back to primary school days, where I found it pretty difficult to apply myself, just in general, in terms of exams and coursework. And... uh, Probably the most, one of the biggest drivers of my life came out of this. And that was when my headmaster turned around to my mother and said, when it comes to Chris, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And all you can really hope for is that he turns into a gentleman, uh, which was which was a nice thing to say um, and really uh, riled my mum. But it's something that we've always referred back to and reflected on. And if I'm honest, I mean, it was a cruel thing to say at the time, but it has been a huge driver for me, pretty much just to prove him wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot, I mean, there's lots of different, you know, as, a, as a, a father as well, I can imagine you could take that in two different ways, right? You, that could break you or make you, couldn't it? So Exactly. And um, it, was, it was certainly a driver in the making of me, I, I think. And it set me on a good trajectory. Well, go on then. Tell us, tell us a bit, uh, tell us a bit more. How did, um, uh, how did the seven, seven, eight-year-old uh, Chris pick himself up, and where did, where did it lead him to? <laughs> well, he, he dusted himself off, um, and after school, uh, I had, had a few years out and thought I'll become a windsurfing instructor, just because that was one of my passions at the time. And actually, that was a, another pivotal moment in my life in the fact that uh, it, it actually enabled me and gave me the tools to talk to anyone of any level. Um, from you know a, a chief exec of a FTSE 100 business down to a man on the street, and it really gave me the confidence to get engaged with ev- with everybody and anyone. So uh, once I'd once I taught windsurfing for a few summers, I actually got a bit of a bug and thought, oh, it'd be nice to set up my own business and run a windsurfing centre in Greece for the rest of my life. But I quickly realised. I, <laughs> I quickly realised that uh, it's better to go on holiday and windsurf instead of actually own a centre and work there. So um, that was a sort of short-lived, uh, short-lived aspiration. But I, I then came back and decided that I would go to to university, uh, and I thought, what, what should I do at university? And my dad at the time was running a golf course architecture practice. And I then thought, well, it would be a good idea to go and take over from him. So I tried to find. Uh, specific degrees that were very relevant to golf course architecture and leisure. And I stumbled across uh, one of the most wishy-washy degrees you will ever hear about. And it was titled Recreation and Leisure Management at uh, Cardiff Polytechnic. Um, So uh, I went to do Recreation and Leisure Management and quickly realised that it was shortened to Rec and Leisure Management, which was then in turn translated into sex and pleasure management (laughs) because we essentially uh, did very little work for three years. But nevertheless, I came out with a 2-1 in rec and leisure management and uh, at that stage realised that actually running my dad's business was perhaps not the right thing for me. So I took some career advice, some very high-level career advice, and someone said to me, "You uh, you talk a lot. 
So the best thing to do is become a recruitment consultant. (laughs) (laughs) So that's exactly what I did. And I went to get a job as an IT recruitment consultant. But um, in terms of timing, it couldn't have been worse. I joined as an IT recruitment consultant, learning the ropes as the dot-com crash happened. And famously, I think I was one of the only recruitment consultants in the business that never placed a single person. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure if I should be vindicated here to think there are there's a few more skills and just talking a lot. But go on. <laughs> True, I'm 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 underselling you here, Nick. I'm underselling. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what was interesting is while during my time at this recruitment consultancy, <clears throat> they had a great lineup of of t- of clients, and one of them was three the mobile phone business as they launched into the UK market. And I was sitting at a meeting and they said, what we really want you to do is go and find us someone that will set up an online retailing business for our mobile phones so that we can test uh, the success online. And in that meeting, I turned to my boss at the time and said, well, I'm, I'm useless at recruitment. Why don't I do it? And in that very meeting, we decided with the head of procurement at three and, and my boss that we would go into a joint venture together where three and the recruitment business and myself would would set up this this online retailer and sell three mobile phones, which was um, something completely different. But it really gave me the bug in terms of setting up a business, growing a business. We grew it to seven people. It was a lot of fun actually selling these phones. They were all the rage at the time. They were the first phones that did video calling, which was very, very novel and new at the time. And that went. That was successful for a year and a half until the phones started failing, and uh, there was a lot of frustration from customers. So I ended up essentially sitting on a phone, uh, handling complaints all day long, and thought, "This is really not my not my bag." So with my background, uh, well, my parents both in property. So my father was an architect, and my mother was a convincing lawyer. I had property in my veins, and and. I asked them if I could borrow some money to buy a house in Bedminster in Bristol, which they agreed to if they could see a business plan. So I wrote a business plan to my mum and dad uh, on how I was going to convert this house, which was in administration, it was being handled by the receivers. And uh, I was going to split it into three flats, which is what I did. And I did it on my own, obviously with a a builder in tow as well. But uh, at the end of it, I managed to make a small profit where I handed back the money that I'd borrowed from my parents and I used the rest of that profit to pay for myself to go back to university. And I went to do real estate management at UWE in Bristol. And I, I ended up uh, there for a year and qualified with a master's. And then obviously the arduous task of applying to all the graduate training schemes started. And I think I applied to most, well, pretty much all of the big firms and the only interview I got was from Cushman and Wakefield. So all eggs, one basket. I went to the Cushman and Wakefield interview. Uh, there was a second round interview and then a team building day. And then also a math test and a, 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 an English test. And then it was a pretty stressful time, but I enjoyed the interviews. And then suddenly the, the big phone call came in from the head of HR at the time, a, a great guy called Nick Van Dorp. And Nick phoned me and said, Chris, how do you think you got on? And I said, well, I'm not going to lie. I found the, the math test and the English test re- relatively tricky, but I enjoyed the interviews and the team building day. And he said, well, let me just put it into context for you. 
He said, your results in the reasoning test or maths test and an English test were in the bottom fifth percentile of everyone that's ever taken this test. So I, I quickly realized that this call wasn't really going my way. But I did manage, he did manage to tell me that my interviews went pretty well and the team building day, uh, they had been very impressed with my performance. And surprisingly, they were there to offer me the role on the graduate training program. So there was me and 25 others where I I, I accepted the job, obviously, uh, with open arms and started uh, in 2004 for a couple of years to get my APC, uh, which was which was an amazing experience. All right. Well, that's, this is a nice a nice sort of break for us, isn't it? You know, you tell that story really, really well, and I think for any, anyone listening, hopefully, you know, they they will they will find this not only entertaining, but but they should also find it very reassuring, right? To know that very successful people don't always start uh, off life on the same steep trajectory. You know, uh, you've taken uh, plenty of time there to really find and hone where you felt at home, right? What what you found that really interests you. How safe in the knowledge were you when those very early days at Cushman's versus some of the other ventures you'd done? You know, did this did they did this feel like it was something different? Did you personally feel like it needed to be something different or not? Yes, um, I really felt like it was what I was born to do really um but i knew pretty much from the get-go that i wanted to run my own business and i think that's because my my mum and dad did did the same so although i knew that it was the place i should be at the time and it was also the place that i was going to grow and learn i also in the back of my mind thought my my aspiration eventually is to is to work for myself and actually this is something that i would recommend to everybody is i it's a bit cheesy but i drew a, i drew a chart time along the bottom axis and and roll along the vertical axis and i said right i'm going to work at cushman and wakefield in the leasing team for three years and then i'm going to move to the investment team and then i'm going to go client side and by that time i'll understand the full life cycle of uh, of property and property development and at that stage, I'll go out on my own. And bizarrely, it almost worked out to the day that that is actually what happened. So <clears throat> Cushman's was a phenomenal grounding for me. Uh, I learned, I was in the leasing team for three years. I learned how to let an office building, which is not just turn up, turn the lights on and uh, show somebody around. It was really understanding the attributes of buildings, perhaps where the buildings weren't so strong, how do you overcome those issues? And I really got a feel and a good grounding behind around what makes a good asset. And eventually, obviously, without stating the obvious, a building is only a success if it, if it has a tenant within it. An empty building is no use to anyone. So I've, I, I found the first three years fascinating, but then I realised I needed to move into uh, uh, the investment side and the reason for that was well that just I... before before we go on to that next that next chapter there's, there was something that's um, you you said that I wanted to come back to you and that's going back to that chart how were how early in that cushman's role did you write that write that prophecy i think i was 6 months in so i had a a very very high level understanding of of what i was doing and where i was and and, and the world at that time but yeah, six months in, I realised that 
that I've got other places to go. All right. I suppose what I wanted to dig into now is someone who just, you know, by by your own admission, sort of scraped in the, you know, the skin of your teeth, right? <laughs> how how dare they to prophesize, you know, this is a stepping stone for me and saying, right, I'm going to be here for three three years and move internally and then, and then I'm going to then I'm, um, uh, go, go do something, something else in three years. What gave you, is it confidence? You know, is it, you know, sort of, incredible sort of foresight is it what what is it you think sort of drove you at that at that time in order to sit down and write that because not many graduates do that right no they don't um but they should i think and and i think the real driver there's just been this inner ambition inside me and <clears throat> my wife and i she's also pretty career focused gives we, we joke about it all the time saying that that ambition is is obviously uh, fantastic, but it's also a curse because there's this inner drive that you can't really explain. But I think it's probably from my background. My parents both worked for themselves and set up their own businesses, and I was brought into life thinking that was the norm. So I knew that I wasn't going to be working for a large corporate business for the rest of my life because there was just this inner desire to push me to, 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 to set up my own business. So, you know, we like to do a bit of research and uh, I, I spoke to a couple of different people who know you uh, around this this time uh, as well. Uh, and this and this this starts to ring true here because this is this is what they say, when, uh, particularly around these early days. right? And this is what they said. The only person I have ever known to write more business plans than me is Chris. <laughs> Where, in my opinion, Chris takes this entrepreneurial flair a step further is his energy, hard work, and enthusiasm, which is so contagious to those around him, it makes everyone want to be part of the journey. That's nice to hear, right? Very kind. But it's obviously it's obviously clear that you know, sort of externally, sort of people noticed you know, that you had your head up, right? You know, you whilst you know, I, I compared you to the average graduate, who I think often, particularly in that first six months, you know, is absolutely lost. In, uh, in those sort of first six months and it's just desperately sort of treading water to survive you know you are already planning sort of your exit uh, and I and I find that interesting and I think people listening to this will as well so we'll make sure we keep coming back to this um anyway but I I interrupted you uh, we'd covered off the importance of those first three years in leasing and then we were just about to introduce the next chapter which was you transitioning into the investment team Yes, I moved. I moved to the investment team within Cushman and Wakefield. It was an easy transition, having come from leasing, so I knew business space. And at that stage, the team, the investment team at Cushman and Wakefield, were amazing. I mean, I've worked with some of the biggest names in in investment at the time, and they were all truly inspirational. And, I, and we still work with a lot of them now. Um, a lot of them uh, deal with us on the brokerage side still. And it was that moment in time for three years where. I really understood uh, the, the the financial metrics and drivers around development and investment, and I think uh, leasing I, to understand leasing is is fantastic, but it is a moment in time within the development life cycle. What you firstly need to understand, or I felt I needed to understand, was how do you buy a building? How do you appraise a building and value a building? in line with an investor's risk appetite and and returns aspirations um and then once uh once it's bought what is the business plan and, and it was interesting to see our clients and developers execute those business plans 
But during that phase, I actually felt like I was missing out on on executing those plans. Again, uh, brokerage is a moment in time, both at the beginning and the end, which is which is fascinating. But there's a huge amount of hard work that's missed in the middle. So that was actually the driver for my next move. Um, a mutual friend or a friend of mine put me into contact with a fund manager at Legal and General, a guy called Matt Jarvis. And we got on like a house on fire and uh, he's, he's still there and he's a brilliant guy, amazing fund manager. And I joined his fund uh, when it was about 600 million and I, and I left when it was about 2 billion. So it'd been on a huge growth phase. But that time at Legal and General was amazing. It was, it gave me a full understanding in a really short time period of how to drive value from assets. So as I was, I joined as a senior asset manager and I ended up looking after a portfolio of, of, of assets, some of which were development focused, some of which were asset management focused. But I had this huge burning desire to make a huge difference to all of them. And I have to say, at that, say, at that stage, it was a sign of the institutional asset management market, but I, I had a huge number of assets to look after. And there was this, this driver inside me to go work for myself. I was thinking, oh, what's my business going to look like? And the answer was, well, I wanted to do what I'm doing at Legal and General because I loved it so much, but I want to do it on a smaller number of assets. And I want to be able to sweat those assets so hard that there is not a penny left of value left in them. We've just ex- extracted all value and we have this perfectly managed building to sell at the end of it for the highest possible premium. So, Chris, what was the biggest lesson you learned during this time at LNG? Well, the, the biggest lesson was purely around value and how to drive value. So we had a, a very big building in Shoreditch, uh, which we bought from Resolution at the time. There was a, a, a large scale development redevelopment left for a number of floors and the reception area. And... Uh, that's that is the moment in time when I realized that I was born to do this. Uh, we repositioned the building. We had a design team meeting on the top floor where we actually got a crowbar and an axe and hacked down the plasterboard ceiling ourselves to see what was under the uh, under the roof. And it turns out there were some incredible steels and some beautiful features that we could expose. And uh, it was that sort of project that really uh, got me excited. And, and I could see potential in, uh, in how we could do that on a smaller number of assets, even more intensively than we were doing it for legal in general. So it was really around trying to spot value in the portfolio that we had and then really focus in on it to drive the returns as, as well as we possibly can. We would then either hold that asset or we would trade out and sell. And I suppose it gave me the confidence that it's possible to reposition any asset really and it also gave me the knowledge that uh, filled in the gap in the middle between the buy side and the sell side so understanding is doing work you know what you've learned so so far that's clear but so too right you know we have to remind ourselves is chris had a plan um so we've we've ticked off the three years at cushman's agency we've ticked off three years at cushman's investment we're now closing out three years as the client. So does it ring true? Does it? Yeah, is this the point of which then you start your own business? Well, my plan on my fridge said that I should be doing it at that stage. So yes, it had to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was a, a great 
set of events, really. A mutual friend of mine, uh, Ross Taylor, who runs Vengrove, put me in touch with with a, a guy called Zach Vizi, um, who is my my co-founder and current business partner. And Zach and I, Ross introduced us to say, you guys will get on well. And I was always talking to Ross to tell him that I was keen to do my own thing. So Zach and I met up with Ross mediating in the middle and we sat and chatted at each other for about three hours each in a basement in uh, the middle of Mayfair. And after after a good number of hours of talking, we decided that this was it. We were going to go into business together, two-man band, asset and development management business, and, and off we go. So to your earlier point, another business plan was written, um, or the first business plan was written for V7, when Zach and I decided, Let, let's do this. So I handed my notice in at Legal and General, uh, which was a very sad time because I, I loved uh, I loved the guys there and I loved the time and and the experience that I gained. But it was definitely time to go out and do my own thing and, and scratch that itch. So Zach and I started the business with the vision of, as I said earlier, driving the value out of a small number of assets intensively. So, so I wanted to uh, interrupt there because that all okay. So that all makes sense. Anyone listening, you know, they they can they can see this golden thread. You know, Chris has a plan. You know, Chris is ticking off all these uh, lessons learnt. But put anyone else in Chris's shoes and you know, leaving you know one of if not the largest institutional investors and asset managers to go do something with someone who they've never worked with before. Just the two of them seems barking to lots of people. <laughs> you know the the risks involved in that. You know, having in many ways, you, you know, you've already, you've, you know, you're on your way here to you know, to being part of the establishment. Means that you know, they would never roll the dice on that. And this is something that I spend a lot of time. I find this is part the parts of all these recordings. I find the most fascinating is. So Chris has gone through the acceleration period, right? Chris has taken up as much as he can. Chris has now reached a period of consolidation whereby maybe not everything is is right. There might be a, there might be a feel like you you know use the word itch there, but so many people you know find a way to bury that and just carry on and maintain the status quo. You didn't. Why? What was you know what was so alluring about doing something on your own, and how did you get over that you know that that hurdle of how risky this is in order to actually make it happen well i mean when you put it like that it does seem absolutely bonkers <laughs> <laughs> but that's not how it felt at the time and uh if and when you meet zach you'll know that um it just felt right what i would say is i always knew i wanted to go work for myself so it was there in the background but it didn't feel like a huge risk at the time. And the reason being is I always I had confidence that I had a background uh, and a fairly deep experience in leasing, investment and asset and development management. So my fallback was relatively protected. I thought if it doesn't work, I've probably lost a bit of money uh, and time, but I can go back and get a job either on the client side or as a leasing agent or as a, an investment agent, all of which I was very happy with at the time. So the downside to me was protected. And I thought this is a venture that I, we have to give it a go. So I actually owned a buy to let in Bristol at the time and I sold that, that house 
and use that money to, to start B7. And Zach was a one-man band asset manager on his own uh, with a few clients and a, and a little bit of income. So we we put my money together with his revenue and uh, off we went together, not knowing each other. But it turned out that actually, and we, we figured this out very early, that we are two totally different people. But we're two totally different people which do totally different things, but complement each other perfectly. And that was the grounding and the basis of, of how we've since grown V7, actually. We just try to use people that are very good at what they do. And we, we, don't, we don't have anyone that's the same in the business because of how, exactly how we started from day one. Okay. Where'd the name come from? Where's V7 come from? Uh, V7 was Zach's, uh, Zach's business, actually. Um, okay. His one-man band, asset management business. VZ was his surname, so V, and then his lucky number was seven. And right. I quite like the letter and a number thing and um, didn't want to use Hunt and VZ. I mean, especially not C Hunt and VZ. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, we, we just adopted that name and, and, and got cracking. We get asked, asked that all the time. Um, but sadly, it's nothing more technical than it was already existing. Getchup. Yeah, well, path of least resistance makes sense. Okay, so we are now, in, you know, sort of in the sort of the inception of sort of V7. Um, tell us how it went. How, how, were the, how were these first couple of years? Well, if, if I'm honest, I mean, it was a bit of a disaster at the beginning. The reason being is both Zach and I are incredibly passionate and energetic and full of beans. So our business plan was, right, guys, we, see, this is going to be easy. We're going to go to all the big institutional investors, legal and general being one. <clears throat> and we're going to say, you've got a huge number of assets. Why don't you give us the most challenging two or three each? And we will spend more time than your asset and development managers can because uh, we have more time. And we'll sweat all the value out of these assets for you and hand them back to you fully done, nice and dry, and then you can choose whether you want to hold them or sell them. And so that was it. We went in and pitched to the likes of Aviva, M&G, L&G, Schroders, and all the other big names, which were lovely meetings. But we came out after six months with absolutely nothing to show for it, <laughs> <laughs> which, was, which was a bit disappointing. I have to say that there is one exception to that, and that's legal in general did actually give us some of my existing assets when I when I was working there. They gave us a few of those to uh, to finish off, essentially. So that was a good uh, soft, soft entry. But the real game changer was when we, uh, we ended up uh, coming across or working very closely with, funnily enough, another developer called Trilogy run by a great guy called Robert Walsenholm. And he had a big asset under offer at the time in East London. Um, and we said, look, we're here to help you if you want two hungry asset and development managers. And he said, great, let's do this. So he had this very large asset under offer with LaSalle, who were the funders. Trilogy were the investment manager. And uh, Zach and I, under the V7 banner, were the asset and development managers. And it worked brilliantly. We, we, we took forward a 600,000 square foot East London office campus. Uh, with a capex of around 60 million and created still to this day what I consider to be some of the coolest office space in London 
um, but it was out in the in the East End. It was, it was in Poplar, and um, that was a, a fairly lengthy project, but it ended up being actually a very successful project for one particular reason, and that's that we spotted very early on uh, the opportunity that actually maybe this isn't a true office campus. Maybe it's an educational campus <clears throat> and managed to attract, well, north of 300,000 square foot of occupa uh, educational occupiers. And it was universities that didn't have a London campus that wanted a London campus and uh, filled it up very quickly full of, full of these educational users. And now it's a thriving educational campus with students everywhere, few gyms, coffee shops, and, and a great little environment down there. And that was the real starting point for V7. How early was that in the, in the V7 days? You said the first six months was very tough. Yeah, it was probably six months in. And we worked on that scheme for three years until we handed it back. So that was a very good entry. But it, on the back of that, we ended up uh, securing a lot more uh, asset development management business. Um, and actually, this is when my, our third shareholder, a guy called Matt Leach, joined us from Aviva. Him and I actually went to university and did the master's together in Bristol. So we were very good friends. And Matt joined us to essentially allow us to grow the business and go and speak to other like-minded investors that needed asset development management assistance. And one of those contacts happened to be Aegon, a guy called Richard Peacock, great guy. And we ended up uh, delivering five or six schemes for them um, very successfully. And again, it, it, on the back of those schemes, it then snowballed and our, and our investor base went wider and wider. So in the early days, we were an out-and-out -out development manager and asset manager. So we weren't, we weren't involved in the buy side and the sell side. But over time, that became very apparent that actually we've got the track record between the three of us to source deals, find deals, take them to the right uh, investor, assist them with the buy side, stay involved in the in the execution and the, the business plan execution throughout the life cycle of the asset and then and then sell at the end. So very quickly, we turned from just being a development management business or an asset management business into a fully fledged developer. And so I would say that was probably after two years, we'd, we'd made that transition and we were then regarded as a, as a specialist office developer. I'm interested, what's the landscape you know, of office? You know, there's, obviously there's been plenty of press about how offices are changing the last, last couple of years. What was, what was the landscape with, with offices at this, at this time? So we're going back, what, seven years ago? Yeah. So um, 2015, 2016. Yeah, offices were were considered to be a very robust quality asset class. Um, if you look at all the all the major funds and a lot of our major investors, they were all fairly evenly weighted between offices, retail, and sheds. But in those days, most investors and most developers would deliver cookie cutter sort of offices. Blue carpet tiles, suspended ceilings, pretty boring places where where office occupiers can sit and do their work at, at banks and banks of desks with very little amenity. And I think what we started to do differently way before COVID was to introduce uh, very interesting amenities into, into these buildings. And we would take inspiration from all sorts of other sectors. And this is where, where I think, and we still do, 
we don't go and see a lot of office buildings these days. What we tend to do is, as a team, go out and see hotels and restaurants and bars that are bringing something different. And we take inspiration from those sectors and we try and intertwine the amenities and the interior design from other sectors into the office space to make it more interesting than just blue carpet tiles and suspended ceilings. And it works. And I think uh, seven years ago, well, probably six years ago, we really started to see if we can intertwine things like communal meeting rooms, uh, gyms, breakout spaces, presentation areas, lots of nice F&B, really great variation in terms of working spaces. So not just I go to the office, I sit at my desk, you could grab a laptop and perch on in a communal uh, drop, uh, drop down point, you can go and sit in the gardens and be surrounded by nature. You can use one of the communal meeting rooms or a presentation area. So just giving people variation. And that's that's that was the concept that we rolled out from early days. Since then, obviously, COVID has sped the whole thing up. And now that's all people want. Boring office buildings are a thing of the past. I want to bring in a bit some more of our research at this point. Uh, and I asked this individual as to why they thought Chris had been successful. And they came. They came back with a with a you know, a, a short sort of pithy sort of response to say that you know these are these are the the points that Chris is always looking for, or the sort of the markers on, on any sort of you know, any sort of challenge that Chris is is, is looking to uh, overcome. Chris never gives up. Chris works very hard. Those two, fine. I get that. They're, they're, that's what we'd say about anyone successful, wouldn't they? It's these next two that I find interesting. These these two make it onto the top four. Any idea what they're going to say? <laughs> I imagine they may say that I'm pretty passionate and full of energy. All right, yeah, it's pretty similar. So we got be kind and have fun. Now, the first two, like I said, obvious, right? We are, don't give don't give up too easily. You know, work very hard. Fine, but those next two I find so interesting. These two make it onto that top that top four of, of how Chris overcomes the challenge by being kind and having fun. What do you make of that? <laughs> Are they fair? I think they're fair. I try to be as kind as I possibly can. Um, I've got two uh, daughters, so I try to set the best possible example for them. Um, I'm sure I'm not kind at some points when. Uh, I'm frustrated, but overall, I think being a good guy and being a a bunch of nice people, which I think V7 are renowned for, we're all deep relationship builders. And I think you can get a, a long way by adopting the carrot, not stick approach. So, you know, incentivizing people to do well, encouraging them, empowering them. And that's how, that's how I thrive. If someone encourages me and and backs me up and supports me I, I that's when I feel like I'm at my best so sort of be kind I, I guess is in ingrained in in me uh, but also in the DNA of these seven with regards to to the other one I think um, it's got to be fun our business is built around fun I mean I suppose the the natural uh, response to that is that I love what I do, and I and and I, and everyone else at V Seven I think loves what they do. We absolutely love transforming buildings and take them from something that is mismanaged, unloved, uh, wrongly managed, looking appalling, 
performing really badly in terms of their environmental credentials and transforming them. I mean, it's, it's like buying a house, doing it up and, and having a phenomenal place to live at the end of it. It's so easy to enjoy that process because you really get a sense of that you've done something and taken it from something that's pretty terrible to something that is hopefully fantastic. And deeper than that, the reason why we love it even more nowadays is because we are absolutely 100% bought into the green agenda. And the way we describe uh, what we do and, and how we have fun is that we, we think it's great fun to leave this legacy, green legacy behind us of little green dots all over the UK of green buildings that are no longer dragging fossil fuels in from down the pipes and they are truly trying to make a difference in terms of uh, their performance and making sure that we can credibly say, look at that great long green legacy that we've left behind. We, building by building, have made a big difference to the climate and the environment, and we're not a drag on, on the rest of society. So we're heading into the final part now of, uh, of the recording. But there is definitely something you know, I can't wrap up without focusing back on, and that's drive. And this is someone, obviously, who is incredibly ambitious, a man who's always got a plan. But has what drove you at the start changed to what drives you now? That's a very good question. I mean, the answer is the drive is very different now. <clears throat> I think in the early days, we were focusing very heavily on growing a business, and I, I my my number one aim was revenue, revenue. It needs to be all about the money, basically to, to, to grow a platform uh, that we can be proud of. But there, were, there wasn't a deeper underlying reason as to why we were doing this. But now it's clearer than ever to me why what drives me is genuinely trying to make a difference in the world. And I appreciate the difference we can make is very small, but on a building by building basis. We used to try and create buildings that were just cool and they would probably be okay. And back in the day, they would have let well and sold well, but now it's deeper. There is a deeper drive to say, why, do, why are we doing this? Why do we get out of bed every morning and improve these buildings? We're no longer looking just to make them cool because we can do that anyway. What we're really looking to do is make a difference or the largest difference we can possibly make in our own small world in terms of ESG and the environment. Obviously, the world has a huge issue with carbon and not many people seem to really care about it, but we do. What I'm, what I'm trying to do and what really drives me is trying to minimise the effect on, on, on the climate in terms of carbon, carbon reduction, and ideally the avoidance of any kind of reliance on fossil fuels. So from our perspective, we're looking to create green buildings that are well insulated, they perform incredibly well. So in terms of uh, the latest accreditation like Neighbours, they're, they're very high scoring Neighbours buildings. We're looking to make sure that uh, we, they're, they're all electric. And we're really trying to make sure that the people that are using those buildings are going to benefit to the absolute maximum for having a really healthy, energy efficient building where they can thrive. In addition to these green credentials and doing the refurbishments and repositionings for the right reasons, 
they also happen to look good and be fueled with amenities that we were talking about earlier. And when you combine all those three things together, it happens to be a building that lets really quickly and sells for a premium. So the byproduct of doing the right thing ends up in a uh, an investment premium. And what a fantastic end result to have a building that's more valuable than others, purely because you set out to do the right thing in the first place. So, Chris, I'm sorry, we've got to wrap this up. But listen, I have thoroughly enjoyed this this story, um, this guy who's sort of happy-go-lucky uh, from the very earliest sort of stage of their, their sort of their finding their feet to what's now been an, an incredibly driven and hugely successful sort of a, um, a representative of the London workspace market, mate. So thank you very much for sharing that story. There's no doubt lots of people will find this really, really valuable. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>